Let's go ahead and make our way in the Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, if you will. But while you're doing so, I just wanted to share a little bit of encouragement with you. The last two months for me has been very difficult, to say the least. Watching my father, you know, his health decline so rapidly, knowing that it was only a matter of time before he would be leaving us, not knowing at that point if he knew the Lord or not, spent many, many hours crying out to God. The Thursday before he died, I saw him in the hospital. I don't even know if he realized I was there. He certainly was, didn't resemble the man that I knew all my life. Again, his body was failing so quickly. And I just thought about the 35 years of witnessing to him, sharing the gospel, and the ups and downs that that brought about. You know, there were sometimes I think, oh, we're making such progress. And then all of a sudden we take 10 steps backwards. And then to see that the night before he died, Dina had the privilege of leading him to Jesus Christ. And my dad called me a procrastinator. Um, when I get to heaven, I certainly will remind him of that. For four years, Dean and I have been pouring ourselves into the youth group here at church. God has been doing something unique. Kids from all over are coming out, and, you know, and uh, we've been seeing them over the four years. The, the group has just grown and grown and grown, and, and it's just been wonderful to see what God is doing. But Dina and I would often leave and say, Lord, we just want them to love you. And we prayed earnestly and earnestly and earnestly. And again, sometimes, you know, it's wonderful to see them and interact with them, but we just wanted them to love Jesus. That's what matters, right? Nothing else matters. And last Friday, we had a very small turnout to the youth group. And at first, I was like, oh, Lord, you know, uh, we're just going to have to pray some more. And then God did something. The subject was on prayer. And, you know, of course, every time you teach on prayer, half, you know, most people don't show up. But we taught on prayer. And as we were going through God's Word, teaching out of Matthew chapter 7, you just saw that God was doing something. Something was happening. They were so intent in listening. They were sharing various stories of how God had answered prayer in their lives. And we just saw, and Dina and Barbara, Artura and Shannon, we were all watching it. God's doing something here. Something's happening tonight. And then we said, well, there's no better way than learning how to pray than to pray, Right? from the great theologian, uh, Mr. Miyagi, wax on, wax off, you know. And then we began to pray as a group. After four years of earning their trust and seeing, allowing them to see the witness of Dean and I in our marriage and with them, demonstrating each and every time that they came how much we loved them and God loved them even more, they began to pray like I haven't heard 
in a long time people pray. They began confessing sin. They began to pray for one another. They began to just incredibly uh, wait on God. And as we, we, we were thought, you know, oh, well, it's going to stop now. Then somebody else would pray again. And then we lo- closed with a closing worship song, and the Spirit of God was just, boom, here He is, man. When God shows up, it's incredible. Afterwards, the young lady pulled me aside and wanting to talk to me after four weeks, she said, God has so impressed it upon my heart that before I do anything else in my life, I need to be right where God wants me to be. Another young lady who, when she first came, was, had, a, I guess, a reputation of being a troublemaker, I always look for those because they end up being some of the most unfired people for God. She's now working her way through the book of Isaiah in her personal devotions, learning about Jesus every step of the way. Another young man who came, who shared with Dina and Barbara, and he left with a Bible, and he was so grateful to have a Bible. And during the last worship song, I never heard them sing like I've heard them sing like they did Friday. It was real. God was moving. I share this with you because so often we feel like all we're doing in life is laboring and breaking up the fallow ground of the hardened hearts. And often we don't see the fruit that we so desperately desire to see. And God showed me and encouraged me that He said, no labor of love is in vain, Eric. What you sow in tears you will reap in joy. 35 years for my dad doesn't even matter anymore because he's in heaven right now, right? The four years with that, with that youth group doesn't matter anymore because of what God did Friday. I say this to encourage you. Maybe you have one of those situations in your life and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. Maybe you're witnessing to a family member, a spouse, a, a uh, son or a daughter, and you don't see like you're making any progress. Don't stop. Keep going because God, God will show up. He's there now. I'm not saying He's absent. He's there now. But when He moves, He moves in a mighty way. Dean and I were driving home Friday night and we were like, what just happened? God is so good. God is so good. He is so faithful. We've been serving Him here at this church for 25 years, and we've seen times where there's many people coming out and great works, and then we have other times where things dwindle off, and then they come back again. You know, it's all up to God. This is God's church. It's His ministry. He's going to do with it what He wants. But the bottom of the line, God never fails. He always accomplishes everything that He wants to accomplish. So may I encourage you, to keep on keeping on. Keep praying. Keep witnessing. Keep interacting with those that you, God has laid on your heart and you don't think you're getting anywhere because all of a sudden, in a moment, everything can change. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you for this message today. No. Father, we do thank you for all the work that you did. You get all the glory for my dad. You get all the glory for the youth group, Lord. You get everything. Father, I pray that it's just encouraged people's hearts to keep moving forward. Father, you're working. 
You're working, Lord. And it's a privilege to be part of it, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you'd continue moving today through your people and your spirit, through your word today. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wasn't even the message. So, chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're getting close to winding up, wrapping up, I should say, our study of the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to look at two parables that are meant to be read together. And those parables begin in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Treasures and pearls is the title of today's message. Jesus speaking, and he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Parables are again the most difficult to interpret portions of Scripture found in the entire Bible. These two pose great interpretive challenges to us today because these parables are not found in Luke or in Mark, but solely in the Gospel of Matthew. And in looking at these two parables, I found that interpreters interpret them in one of two ways. The first way is that they see that the treasure and the pearl is referring to us and that it is Jesus who goes and gives all that he has to obtain us. The second line of interpretation is that Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of heaven and those who obtain it, them going out and selling all that they have, and overjoyed in it, obtain something more valuable than they ever could find in this world. I hold to the latter of the two interpretations, and I'll share with you why this morning. Let us begin by looking in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. I think it is interesting that we get an understanding of the call of Jesus Christ upon those whom will follow Him, and those in whom will follow Him what will be required of them in a sacrificial way to do so. And I believe that later as we get into the New Testament, Paul indicates to us that the principle that we are going to learn today will lead you into a greater joy in the Lord than maybe you've ever experienced before in your life. Now what we're going to be talking about is going to sound radical to our ears today because it truly is the definition of radical. Giving up all that we have to do something in a unique and profound way. Now, if this interpretation is accurate, we should be able to find in the other teachings of Jesus similar sentiments given to us or principles given to us indicating that such sacrifice is required in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. So let us begin in Luke 14, 
Luke, again, writing in a completely different manner than Mark and Matthew, who I believe Mark and Matthew, or Matthew specifically, was writing to Jewish people, convincing the Jewish people that Jesus was their Messiah, even though he didn't fulfill the profile of the coming Messiah in which they had personally adopted, because they were waiting for one to take the throne in in, in Jerusalem and to usher in a new zenith of existence for the nation of Israel. Unlike the you know, not unlike the zenith of existence that they experienced under King David himself. But when Jesus didn't do that, they began to wrestle and struggle in their hearts to truly understanding if, understand if he was the Messiah in which they were waiting for from the beginning. The disciples struggled with this, asking him if, he could, if they could sit on his right hand, on his left hand, thinking that he was going to establish the kingdom at that moment. Right before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, they asked him again, Now will you restore the kingdom to Israel? But all throughout Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is dispelling the misconceptions of the inauguration of the kingdom and setting proper expectations for the disciples to know and to prepare them for what is coming next for them in their mission for him. And so I believe he is speaking to the disciples and he is sharing with them that the necessity of forsaking all to follow him is necessary for the discipleship. And I believe that's consistent through the Gospels. I believe that's consistent when we come to Paul and we'll look at Paul when he writes to the Philippian church. But notice what Luke says as he's writing to a gentleman named Theophilus. He's writing this letter that Theophilus, a Gentile, may know and understand who Jesus is and what Jesus requires. Notice what he says. In giving the narrative or the narration of the story of Jesus, he writes, he says, Now great multitudes went with him, that is, with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own uh, life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, That man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the others are still a great way off, he sends a a delegation and asks uh, conditions of peace. Notice what he says here. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is Jesus, not speaking solely to the disciples, but speaking to the multitudes, Luke recording this for Theophilus so he would understand and know what is required to become a disciple of Jesus Christ would indicate to me the necessity of forsaking all and following after Jesus Christ is necessary. 
But what does that mean? What does that look like? That sounds incredibly radical to me. This degree of abandonment of all things. You mean I'm to love God more than my wife and more than my children and more than my mom and dad? Yes. This is what Jesus meant when He said, the greatest commandment of all is to love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. I don't know why I keep quoting that in the old King James Version. It just comes out that way. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, Jesus is saying that we shouldn't uh, abandon our love for these people, but that we need to love God significantly more in all things. Now, in American Christianity, that sounds so radical. That type of abandonment isn't considered when counting the cost of following Jesus. And notice that Luke is totally using this teaching of Jesus for the purpose of Theophilus counting the cost of what is required to follow after Jesus Christ. Now, let me make a very important point here. I am not saying that this is a condition of salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God that is obtained by faith through the grace of God. What I'm talking about here is what happens next. What I'm talking about here is the discipleship process where we become less like the world and more like Jesus Christ. He is setting the standard of the mindset of the individual who has come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, who has been given new life in Jesus Christ, and how that new life should be applied going forward. Jesus must be, as Paul wrote to the Gentile church of Colossians, our preeminent. He must sin and I'm sin, excuse me. He must sit and reign on the thrones of our heart. Now, understand that in the culture in which the Gospels were written, teachers would have disciples, those disciples would follow after their teachers, and they would learn not only by the verbal instruction, but also by the example in which the teacher gave them. That's exactly what Jesus did with the disciples. Now, those disciples of the teachers in that culture often attached themselves to teachers, rabbis, who they believed could you know, elevate them or uh, lead them into further success or uh, a greater standing in society. But Jesus is saying just the opposite. If you're going to come after me, you've got to lay it all down. You've got to love me before you love anything else in this world, including yourself. You've got to love me more. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's trying to convey to us. I believe that this type of abandonment in the following of Jesus Christ day by day leads to some of the greatest joy that we can ever experience in the Lord. Some of the most miserable Christians that I have met are those Christians that are trying to hang on to the world and hang on to Jesus Christ all at the same time. They're constantly being torn in two different directions. You just want to say, let go of one, because you're not happy. You're, you've got too much of the Lord in you to enjoy the world, and you've got too much of the world in you to enjoy the Lord. 
It's like those movies that have those cliffhanger endings, literally, where the person falls off the cliff, and because they want to, they have something in their other hand, they're only hanging on to the person trying to rescue them with the one hand, and they're trying to hold on to everything else down here, and you know if they just let that stuff go, but it's so valuable to them, it's worth so much to them, that they hold on to it even though it could cause them to lose their life. If they would just let go and hold on with both hands to the person that is rescuing them, they would be saved. They would experience life. That's what we need to do as Christians. We need to let the world go. We need to let the world go. And I believe that Jesus is saying that to his disciples so that they may set for themselves a proper expectation of what is to come next. In verse 44, he talks about treasures. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. For 400 years, Israel was engaged in one military conflict after another. Residents of Israel, historians tell us, to save their valuables from being plundered by their their enemy coming against them, they would bury those uh, valuables in a field. They would then go off to war, fight the battle. If they won, then they would come back and grab their valuables. If not, they probably didn't need them anyways. And so Jesus is using a very simple, common illustration that everyone could identify with. They didn't have banks at that time, so they simply stored their valuables in treasure chests in a field. And apparently a worker comes along, he finds the treasure chest... And instead of taking it immediately, he hides it once again because he knows to do so would be wrong. And so he then goes and sells all that he has for the treasure in which he had found. And I believe the emphasis here is not so much on the treasure, but on the joy that the individual finds. And in the Greek language, one of the tools that I use is called a syntax graph. And in the syntax graph, they show you the emphasis of the Greek passage. And joy here is emphasis. It's joy of finding this treasure. Remember, if, the, if following Jesus Christ, if the 12 disciples that are with him who are going to follow Jesus Christ, if it's going to be required of them to abandon all to do so, Jesus then tells them that in your abandonment of all, have joy in doing so because you're getting so much more in its place. After 35 years of walking with the Lord, I realize that there is nothing in this world that compares to Him. And I've now come to that place in my walk, and maybe you have too, where I'm not so much interested in all that God can provide for me as much as I'm interested in God Himself. The reason I want to go to heaven is not because heaven is some great place in and of itself. It's because God is there and I desire to be with God. As as Jeremiah wrote, and we studied on Wednesday night in the book of Lamentations. And if you think that Lamentations is all lamenting, you're right. But it's also great revelation concerning who God is. And in the lowest point of Jeremiah's point, as he's looking out over the ruined city of Jerusalem, he comes to the conclusion that in all of it, God's goodness and mercy are there, and he's going to regather his people. And Jeremiah makes the decision that God is his portion. You can have everything else. I want God, Jeremiah says. 
The Jewish people, when they came into the promised land, were given possessions and inheritance. And what he means by saying that, it's not so much what I'm concerned about what God can give me. I want God himself. I want to know him more personally and intimately. That's really what eternal life is all about, knowing God. Everything else is gravy, right? I mean, what, can't, what, can't, what is God incapable of doing except lying, you know? So he is saying here that if you abandon all and come after me, joy will be found in the fact that you realize that the treasure of the kingdom of heaven itself is greater than anything that this world has to provide. But notice that phrase, all that he has. In the Greek, that phrase is used elsewhere in the Gospels. In fact, in a story that Luke and Matthew write, in Luke's account, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 27, notice this with me. The same Greek phrase is used here as Jesus is speaking to one who is known as the rich young ruler. In verse 18, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? And we can get into that at another time. No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. He says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Well, I think Jesus would doubt that or debate that. He said, so when Jesus heard this saying, he said to them, well, you still lack one thing. Notice what he says. Sell all that you have, the same Greek phrase, and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he had heard this, he became very sorrowful, and he was very rich, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, when then can, or Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are, in, are impossible with men are possible with God. Jesus was telling this individual that what's holding you back from truly embracing me is the personal wealth that you have. Now, we are not saved by giving up our personal wealth or keeping the commandments. Jesus knows that. This was what's called an um, a argument of rhetoric. Jesus was trying to show this man his own heart, trying to say that to him that these are the things that are keeping you back. He you know, obviously wasn't dealing with the thoughts of his mind, but simply the actions of his hands. To follow after him is the real key to all of this. Come and follow after him because Jesus knew that following after Jesus would eventually lead all of his disciples to the cross. And their salvation is paid for us. But what Jesus is saying here is that this man was unwilling to give up the things of the world to follow after him. Because these things were that person's treasure. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says to us, in Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, 
and where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is the most important part of all of this right here. For wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we cannot have our treasures in this world and properly love God in the manner in which He has called us to do so. This is exactly what John was referring to in his first epistle when he talked about uh, Christians' affections and love for this world. I'm not saying that we can't enjoy the beauty that God has created or enjoy the institutions that He has created, such as marriage, or to enjoy our family or to enjoy these things. But in all things, we must love God more. We must. That's the key to Christianity. It is this love that will motivate us to lay our life down for one another. It is this love that will motivate us and allow us to lay ourselves as living sacrifices before a holy God and allowing Him to do in and through us all that He, he desires to do. And like Paul say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. You know, why did Jesus ask the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Again, our salvation is a free gift of Jesus Christ. But I personally believe that so many Christians are struggling today in their walk with the Lord because they have their hands in both places. And if they would just let go of the world and grab onto Him with everything, they would realize how much more God has for us. It's incredible. It pales in comparison. It's only that type of embrace of God that I believe will allow us to truly fulfill all that God has for us. Now, please, I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying for a minute that I do it perfectly. Every time I do, I just remember, or all of a sudden, Satan will just remind me that there are still things in this world that I'm very attracted to. And for example, I'm driving home, I'm praising God in my Corolla, and I'm listening to the worship music, and I'm having a great time. Oh, Lord, I'm so fulfilled in you, and so forth. And then the, the model of Corvette that I would have ordered five years ago is right next to me. And I just say, Lord, how much more and how much faster I could serve you with that Corvette. I could have my devotions. I could read an extra chapter on Sunday and get to church still on time and I'd be even more on fire, not only from the devotions, but from the ride here, you know. Autumn's grown up. She's 22. We don't need a car seat anymore, God. I ain't starting that process over again. I just paid for one. Oh, guys, I, I get it, man. We're torn. There's things, you know, that you just look at and you're just reminded. But let's be honest. God may not provide everything we want, but He always provides everything that we need. And when I needed a new car, I prayed for a new car. I said, Lord, if it happens to be a Corvette, I'd be humble about that. Well, He gave me a car that starts with a C. It's a Corolla. Zero to 60 in four minutes, you know. That's what Jesus is getting at here. 
when he talks about the pearl of great price. It's the same thing. These two particular parables are joined together in the original language, and they're meant to emphasize the same point from two different perspectives. And of course, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a beautiful, beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. But Jesus said, following him will cost everything. As they waited for their Messiah, they waited for the coming of the kingdom. Jesus knew that their understanding of the kingdom in which he was inaugurating at that moment didn't look anything like that in which they anticipated or expected. And he needed to prepare their hearts as he needs to prepare ours today. Matthew wrote later in Matthew 10, verses 34 and 30 through 39. Notice what he says here. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemy will be those of his own household. He who loves father and and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his sons and daughters more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The word worthy here is a word that some Christians believe no longer applies to them, but that would be incorrect in thinking so. The book of Ephesians is structured in a very unique way. And once you understand the way the Holy Spirit structured that letter through Paul's writing, you understand the significance of chapter 4, verse 1. For the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out for us every blessing that we have obtained in Jesus Christ. Establishing who we are as a child of God. Reminding us of the significance of the work of God in our life and the guarantee that's been placed in our hearts, the Holy Spirit. And all that we have been blessed with in Christ for the new life, to live the new life that He has given us. And then Paul switches gears in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says then, now walk worthy of all that God has done for you. Walk worthy. We as Christians need to be mindful that there is personal responsibility involved in following Jesus Christ. That personal responsibility is denying thyself. It's taking up our cross and following after Him. Our personal responsibility is to carve out time each and every day of our life to spend in time with prayer and in the Word of God. I personally want to, I'm going to say something. You may disagree with me. If, if you do, you can send a letter to a P.O. box that doesn't exist. I'll give it to you afterwards. But I believe that we have been so blessed in this country with access to God's Word and time and freedom to express our faith clearly, that often when people come to me and say, I am struggling praying and reading the Word, after talking with them for a little while, I find that it's not, it's not a struggle. It's just that they haven't done it or they don't want to do it. 
That's not a struggle. God calls us to be self-disciplined. God calls us to be uh, responsible with those things that He has given us. We need to be responsible in our walk with God to honor Him by devoting time to Him, by devoting time to His Word each and every day, by devoting time and praying with our families, uh, devoting time to praying with our spouses. These are all necessary to be a healthy Christian. I said on Friday night in the youth group that on Amazon they have over 30,000 books listed on how to help a person learn how to pray. They have 20,000 books listed on how to help a person diet. And I asked them, I said, what do both books have in common? Well, if you don't apply either one of them, it's no good, right? My book on prayer would consist of three words and on three pages. And I put one word to each page to make it easy read for everybody. Just do it. Just do it. Make time for it. Be purposed about it. Because I believe that is necessary. 